the Stoics understood that the excellent person does what the normal people, the common person does naturally. They just do it excellently, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes there is something to be said about people who have this, about the Stoics admiring and their, their view of living according to nature is exactly that, doing what people tend to do. That's, they're on the right track. But the Stoic is the one who aspires to do it excellently. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. And in this conversation, I speak with Leo Kostantikos. Leo is a veteran professor of international relations and co-author of Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living In. And that's written with past Stoic guest, Kai Whiting. Leo and I cover how he came to see Socrates in a different light, how Stoics influenced ancient Sparta, how they viewed justice differently, and what we can take from that today. We also lightly spar over whether someone can or should call themselves Stoic today. Leo takes a different cut on several of these issues, but he has a very strong background in ancient works and a clear love of the Stoic tradition. So I'm very happy with how this conversation turned out. Enjoy. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. Today I'm speaking with Leonidas Kostantikos. Leo teaches in the International Relations Department at Florida International University, along with Kai Whiting. He's the co-author of Being Better, Stoicism for a World Worth Living In. Thanks for joining. Pleasure to be here. Let's start with this broad question. What's your story? I read philosophy as a kid, and I loved it, even though I didn't understand any of it. And I found philosophy again, and Stoicism in particular, once I got out of the war. And I was in the Iraq war for two tours. And when I came home, I started seeing my hero Socrates in a different light as this disgruntled combat veteran that's asking people why they're going to send soldiers and young men to die for justice that they don't, they can't even define. And that led me to probably to the Stoics, who are probably some of the toughest philosophers in the history of philosophy, who decided that if you try hard enough, you can make your mind the most resilient thing in the universe and fell in love with them, never looked back. Yeah. I wonder if you could say a little bit more how you saw Socrates in a, in a new light. I think a lot of people overlook that he was a veteran. Right. So I, grew, so I grew up watching like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, where they, see, they show Socrates as this bumbling old man. And we forget that Socrates served in a 27-year war against the, the toughest people on the face of the planet, the Spartans, a war in which his city-state Athens lost. So during that time and, and afterwards, he's asking people like, what is wrong? Like, what, what are the things that we value? What is wrong with our definitions of justice and courage? And why did we lose with our great empire and our mighty navy and our, you know, our top-rate military? Why did we lose against these half-hick stiffs, the Spartans, right? So he's asking people questions like things like, what is justice? What is courage? What is self-control? What is the right way to live? And he's realizing that people don't know the answer and they're making political decisions. They're making, they're making decisions for the entire, their entire community. 
and, and they're just they're deciding that they know what justice is when really they don't. And at least Socrates knew that he didn't know, right? So he was this much wiser than everybody else in that at the beginning of the conversation, he knew that he didn't know. And at the end of the conversation, he still understood he didn't know, but the other person learned something new. They didn't, didn't know what they were talking about. And I love that about Socrates. And we seem to forget that he was also super tough. Like he got the he got the medal for for bravery, right? Well, the equivalent of the medal for bravery, the award for bravery in uh, in the Peloponnesian War. He served in at Potidaea, at Delium, at Amphipolis, in the war against the Spartans. So there's this whole other side to Socrates where we can we can imagine just how tough he really was, and I think that's what the Cynic philosophers and later the Stoic philosophers, some of the things that they valued about him, was his his courage, his tenacity, his carteria, which is basically a type of endurance that he had. He was known he could, Socrates could stand up all night in a philosophical trance with just about like bare feet and one an old cloak in the snow while he's thinking about some philosophical problem. So he was extremely tough. And I, and I always admired that about Socrates, especially after my time in the, in the army. Right. Yeah. He was renowned for his endurance. He could go to some symposium and then, well, everyone else yeah. is nodding off. He's like, let's go yeah, still back to the Agora. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Go work out. Yeah. Yeah. How'd you move from, you know, discover, so rediscover Socrates and then end up studying the Stoics and thinking more about the Stoics? Sure. So especially reading again about Socrates and I, the more I started, the more I started reading about him and the more I saw the Stoics as basically his intellectual descendants, right? That understood or they thought they understood that virtue is the only good, that the good is equal to the honorable. And Socrates had that same view, at least Socrates that we know of from early Plato or middle Plato has, has Socrates stating that the good is equated with the honorable and that virtue is a type of knowledge. And the Stoics took that and they, they, they took that conception and, under, and, follow, and followed Socrates to his logical conclusion that everything else is an indifferent, right? Now, it doesn't mean things aren't to be selected or rejected, but they're indifferent to happiness, right? So, and there is some debate about this in the, in the Stoa, but when you look at what is the good, the moral good, the Stoics thought were basically things that can contribute to your happiness. There are other goods, right? There are things to be selected, right? Uh, health, wealth, reputation, but for, for the Stoics in general, the moral good was only that which is honorable. And I think that, that they are the intellectual descendants of Socrates, them and the cynics, but the cynics abandoned epistemology and metaphysics, in a, and the, the Stoics were just smarter. <laughs> right. Yeah, they had a Chrysippus. The Stoics had Chrysippus to right. Right. systematize their work. Yeah, um, exactly. And, yeah. And I suppose unlike, unlike the cynics, they allowed for this idea of indifference, that something might be preferable or dispreferable, as opposed to focusing solely on virtue as the, the only thing worth pursuing. Sure. I, it's also like, it's, for me, it was important to remember that the Stoics themselves came from all walks of life, right? All the early Stoics were immigrants, right? The early, the early heads of the Stoics were immigrants. You don't, have an Athenian, you don't have an Athenian Stoic or Stoic head of the school until like the mid, late middle Stoic, I think. And, you know, you had Zeno, who was a merchant, a failed merchant, right? You had Chrysippus, who had been a long-distance runner. Cleanthes had been a boxer who carried water at night. So you had all these guys, all these immigrants from, from all walks of life, uh, having, to, having to view their world as something other than centered on the city-state and as something other than being 
autochthonous born citizens. So they found they founded a philosophy that would work for everyone in a certain way, right? Just by virtue of being rational human beings, right? Of course. And then that sort of tradition, I suppose, it continued in the when you get to the Roman Stoics, where you have Epictetus, the slave, a famous one of the most famous Stoics, and then you had a Seneca, advisor to the emperor, and then of course, eventually you have emperors uh, sure. adopting Stoicism themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And you you also had Stoics who especially the early Stokes, who were reform, political reformers, right? I mean, the, as myself, I, I get my trade, you know, my, my trade is international relations theory, right? So I look at the, the political aspect of the Stoics, and so many of them had been reformers. There, there's a whole aspect of the early Stoics, which we only talk about, like Zeno, for example, one of his, one of his friends, possibly lovers, was this guy, Cremonides. And Cremonides, there was a whole war named after him, where the Athenians rebelled against the Macedonians, right? So the Cremonidian War was this admirer or lover or friend of Zeno who had started a war against the Macedonians, right? You had, on the other side, you had uh, Perseus who actually went to a lecture, went to teach and, and be in the court of what the modern Macedonian kings. You had Spheris, who was staunch, probably, probably staunchly anti-Macedonian. He went to go teach the king of Sparta and went to the court of Ptolemy to, to in, in some of the places that were the most anti-Macedonian as possible, right? So, and they probably, in so many of these places, and you had you had also in the early Stoa, almost in the Stoa, but really early Stoa, Blasius, for example, he leaves Rome to become an enemy of Rome to, to Pergamum, where he tries to found this Heliopolis, right? This, this city full of like runaway slaves. So they were political reformers in the early Stoa. It's not till the middle Stoa too. You, got, you, you get more of these guys that are according to the status quo, right? Like Panitius, right? But the early Stoa, they were, they were quite radical in some sense. Let's dive into one of those characters. So you want us to talk more about Spheris and how he influenced the political makeup of Sparta, I suppose, both internally and externally. Sure. So first, I want to give a, a disclaimer that I... I'm not an I'm not an historian and I'm not a classicist, right? I'm an international relations theorist. So it's it's the job of somebody else to understand how how accurate people like Plutarch and Polybius are, right? That's not my job. My job is to look at these themes and try to say, okay, which what are the Stoics saying here, and what does this say about politics, right? So just if 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 that if as long as we can agree that 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 that's what I'm looking at, then I could tell you about Spheris. He basically he's living in, in the in this in this world where Zeno had already written a republic of what a, a city or a world of sages would look like, and Chrysippus follows after. So what's happening in the early Stoa is you have people like um, Spheris, who leaves Athens, goes and he he lectures, and he becomes a tutor to to Cleomenes, who later on will become a king of Sparta. Now what happens here is. As he, he's lecturing, he's, he's becoming a, a tutor, a philosophical tutor to Cleomenes, who eventually becomes king and, and decides to reform Sparta. Now, he wasn't the first reformer. That would have been, there was a guy before him named Agis, who was a great guy and tried to make Sparta, make Sparta great again and got himself killed for his trouble, along with his, his mother and his grandmother. So Cleomenes, and incidentally, he's highly admired by Machiavelli, right, for, for reasons that would become obvious. Cleomenes has no such compunctions. He's, he's trained under the Stoic philosophy by Spheris, and when he takes power, he's, he has a couple of mentors. So he, one is Spheris, which is a Stoic philosopher that is in the early Stoa, when the Stoa is new and dynamic and trying to reform society, right? That is seeing so, social status and reputation, all these things as indifferent. 
And his other, Cleomenes' other mentor is his wife, who's a bit older. She was already the widow of the last king that got killed for trying the same thing. And under these two very dynamic people, Cleomenes makes, well, to use this, to use this term, makes Sparta great again for, for, for about a decade. And by reforming the education system, by reforming the political, social, and economic system, and even eventually even making helot peasants into warriors, all right? Now, I'm glossing over the political realities. He had to kill quite a bit of people to do this, okay? He had to, he had to kill, he had to destroy the constitution to do this. He became a despot. But if, you, if you're going to have a despot, you want somebody like Cleomenes, who was a Stoic philosopher, right? We, we didn't have to wait for Marcus Aurelius to have a Stoic ruler. We had Cleomenes. And it worked, it worked for a long time until it didn't, until it just wasn't a world for city-states anymore and eventually got cru- crushed by Macedon. But for a while, Sparta was poised to take over Greece again. And this is due, at least in part, to the, the dynamism of somebody like Sphaerus, who's able to go and put these Stoic principles in a way that Zeno applied it to a utopia and using the nationalism and the the history of Sparta, apply these Stoic principles to a Sparta in order to make it a place that was worth living in. So what are the lessons we can pull from that, that story today? There's a few different types of lessons, depending on the level of analysis, right? One is that of the individual. And Sphaerus was able to persuade someone like King Cleomenes to say that, like, look, being a natural-born Spartan doesn't really matter, right? Yeah, I w- we would rather have a good foreigner than a bad Spartan. And he was able to make his mercenaries, his peasants, his, his, the people that, that lived around Sparta into Spartan citizens and was able to educate them and train them in a way like you would a native-born Spartan. So this was, as far as this went, it was cosmopolitan in this sense. Okay, that, mm-hmm. that, is, that is one lesson, I think, at the one level of analysis, that of the individual. At another level, we could look at what is the, what are the dynamics of Sparta, well, of, of some qualified equality, if you will, right? Like basically that this guy, Cleomenes, under his Stoic principles and framed through the Spartan worldview, he lived simply, he, was, he tried to equate the good and the honorable like the Stoics did, right? So it was, for him, it wasn't about, he could have, he could have been a, just one of these typical kings of Sparta of, this, of the Hellenistic era who was basically content to live in luxury, content to have sit on his throne and, and, and play this game of this king that whose glory days are, of a city whose glory days are behind her. And it's not, that's exactly not what he did. Right? Yeah, yeah. He, gave, he gave his entire property, all of his land and the land of his relatives to Sparta in order to, in order to take care of and wear this role of Stoic and Spartan, right? So he was a Spartan king by his, by, by his social role, but he was a, he was a Stoic by his, his philosophy. And that is that combination led to him taking care of the people around him, the people of his city, and even people all over the Peloponnese who were like, wow, this, this, is, this is something revolutionary. And if things had been slightly different, Plutarch tells us, who knows, they might've been able to go to, to be as great as Sparta was 200, two centuries before that. But I mean, fortune being what it is, it's not the way it worked out in the long run, but who knows? Who knows where this would have went if, if, if Sparrows hadn't been at the right place at the right time to, in order to do this. And we're told some of his reforms survived long after Sparrows and Cleomenes were dead and gone, right? So the world would, Sparta and the world would have been a, a worse place without Stoicism and uh, without someone like Sparrows in particular. Right, right. Yeah, the context that 
at this point in time, Sparta has basically been in a state of managed decline where it, its kings are, we would pr probably say today, grifting off of uh, something that's going downhill is, is crucial. Cleomenes could have done that, uh, but he did not. Right, uh, exactly. This, it's sort of an interesting issue there, right? The issue of when do you bring new individuals into the polis, into the city? One that comes up again and again for the Spartans in particular, who had very hard line on hmm. membership, but of course, across other Greek states and of course today as well. I mean, it's a very broad question, but like, how do you tend to think about that question in the ancient context? You know, like what they're thinking about who should be a citizen or who should at least have some degree of citizenship. What are the sort of important political principles or moral principles that come into play? For what I think seems like, what seems obvious to me is that we, we can't, we can't just gloss over some of the things that were obvious at the time. Like the Stoics, the Stoics were people of their time, right? And it was a very interesting time to be a philosopher. And the reason I'm saying this, Caleb, is because I think this, this leads us to the broader question of who can be a Stoic today. And I got to tell you, this probably isn't very good for my career, but it's, to me, it seems like to say that someone is a Stoic today is like, trying to, is like saying that they're trying to be a Roman legionary right? Yes, they can be super tough. Yes, they can be great soldiers. Yes, they can be, they can march 20 miles a day, but you're not a Roman legionary. For me, Stoicism is in some sense the same way. Like these are people of their time in the sense that they had a completely different metaphysical view. They had a completely different view of human anatomy, even, okay? The way the, the, the human beings fit in their cosmos. So they were also, they were also looking at the way human beings are fitting in, in the international system. This is, a, this is a world in which the city-state is becoming more and more irrelevant, and people have to define themselves as something other than just a citizen of their local, local city-state, which, which some of these aren't city-states anymore. They're being carved up into different empires. So Stoics are some of these, are some of these people that are saying, okay, what, in, in what sense are we citizens and citizens of what? And I think the Stoics are seeing like, okay, well, if we are citizens— what makes us citizens? And these men are saying that what makes us a citizen is this common bond of rationality. Now, it didn't start with the Stoics, right? We see this with the Cynics as well, right? With Diogenes in particular. We see this with Socrates in the dialogue, something like in the, in the Mino, where he gets even a slave boy to say like, okay, this, this slave boy has the same type of soul that you do, Mino, and that I do, right? And by virtue of us, of him having a soul, he fits into this community of rational beings. The cynics as well were, on the, at least on their best behavior, they were cosmopolitans. Right? That, in the negative sense, like you can't tell me what to do. I'm not a city. I'm not a citizen of your city state. I'm a citizen of the entire world. By the time you get to the Stoics, especially the middle nates in the late Stoics, they're defining themselves not just as members of their community, which they are, but also members of this universal community that we all share a share part of. And if you look at someone like a Stoic Heracles, much, much later than, than some of these early Stoics, but what Heracles is saying is that the excellent person does what the average person does naturally, right? So we all have these circles, but like we, the way, I, the way I, I, I describe it sometimes is like, who would you give a kidney to? Yeah, your closest relatives. By the time you get to your distant cousins, would you give a kidney to them? And 
you see how your your obligations decrease, right? And that's understandable. But the Stoics, like Heracles, are, are, are basically describing explicitly that the excellent person, and the word in Greek here is ente, the entetamenon, right? And though there's some, some, some controversy about this word, basically the excellent person is this well-tuned person that can bring even someone from the furthest circles into these inner circles. So it kind of transcends this boundary. Someone who can treat even the furthest foreigner like a fellow citizen. And so you can, you can understand your role like Cleomenes did as this, as this king of this particular city, but also this more universal role as like human being. And this is something that will be made explicit even more later on by Marcus Aurelius, but we get a taste of it even in the early Stoa under Sparus, right? Yeah, so the Stoics were pioneers in the sense that they started coming with these initial systems to bring in new people into the body politic, but not just in the body politic, also in interpersonal dealings, which as empires started growing bigger, became a much more important issue for the Greeks and then of course later the Romans to manage. How, you know, how would you deal with all these different people? What's the right way to treat them? And yeah, the Stoics were, if not complete egalitarians, moving in that direction. I think that's right, Caleb. And I think one of the things that's interesting is that it's, we often forget, especially in the common usage of the word justice, we see just, we tend to see justice as something external, right? Something that happens out there. Well, that's not the way the ancients saw justice, right? For them, justice is a character trait. So justice is something that you can, like, you can be, just, you can be just, you can have just actions. But you have to act from somewhere because the world isn't just in the sense of the word that we call justice, right? So you have someone like Cleomenes that has to that has to be just or has to try to be just, has to has to perform his kate conta, right? His, his appropriate actions in a world that is that they didn't consider to be just or unjust necessarily. It's just the way things were, right? So you can be just, but you can't have a just world in that in the sense in the sense that laws can be just or things like that. We can interpret laws and make them just by, by our actions, or I say we can act justly, but you have to act from somewhere. And we see this, I think, more pronounced in the life of someone like Marcus Aurelius, who understands he's a Roman emperor and has to act from somewhere. So it's not like he can, even if he wanted to, which it's unclear that he would have ever wanted to, but even if he, even if he wanted to, he couldn't outlaw slavery necessarily. The entire system would collapse, right? But what he could do is in his law courts, if there was any doubt about whether the slave should be released on the death of the master, he made it happen, right? So to the extent that he was able to, I mean, he, he purportedly banned sharp weapons in the, in, the, in the arena, right? Because just to move it in a more humane direction. So you can be just, even a world that we would not consider just. So I think that's what we can learn from the Stoics in this sense, in the, the sense of politics and international politics, is justice is not something that happens out there. Like if you, if you can study international politics and understand political realism, that every unit either the individual or the empire or the state or the nation state is going to act according to its interests. Well, still justice has to act, has to come from individuals. Still individuals have to say, well, yes, I am a ruler or I am playing my little role or I'm a soldier and I can act justly, at least theoretically I can act justly in a world that I cannot consider just. Right, right. right. Yeah, there's a parallel there just in the stoic idea of the dichotomy of control, the fundamental 
divide that there are some things that are up to us and others that are not. And if you were to transport yourself back into ancient Greece or Rome, what you could hope for in terms of change is going to be arguably much less just along some dimensions in the what you're calling the external sense and the social sense, right? You can't just outright ban slavery. That's just not even on the table. And you're in a situation where that institution came in for a reason and there's a whole history, not a justifying reason, but a whole history of people's interests bound up in the institution. In addition to the fact that many slaves, when they are freed, didn't tend to look down on slavery as an unjust Right, they had um, slaves, right? Yeah, they, exactly. they would get slaves themselves. So I think, you know, I suppose that's always a useful reminder of thinking about what's up to you, like what's are the in fact that decisions you're making was reflected in your character, and then thinking about the situations we happen to find ourselves in, situations others happen to find themselves in, being informed by all of these factors that are out of any one individual's control. Right. I think that's right. Yeah. So I want to pick up on one thing you mentioned earlier, this thought that being a Stoic today is sort of like being Roman legionary in the sense that things are just so different, that people who were Stoics are radically different just because people in the ancient world had a completely different worldview, completely different material <clears throat> circumstance to the extent that calling oneself a Stoic today is perhaps somewhat misleading. Do you want to say more about that? Yeah. Well, first, let me say that I'm a huge fan of the Stoics, right? I mean, I've dedicated my life to reading and writing and learning about the Stoics, right? I'm a huge, I, and I'm a, I'm a I, if I can consider myself anything, I'd be a student of Stoic philosophy. I will never call myself a Stoic, okay? That's my own personal decision for a few different reasons. Okay, one, I think one of the most important reasons for me that I, I will never, I will not call myself a Stoic, even though that might be, that might be not conducive to a, to a career in writing about Stoicism. But if I'm being honest, it's because someone like Socrates and even Epictetus did not consider themselves philosophers, right? So Socrates, when he, when someone asked him like, hey, do you know any philosophers? Socrates would take them to some, someone, else, someone else. Hey, this guy wants to meet you because he's looking for a philosopher. Epictetus himself, he says in many, on some occasions, when someone's, when he says like, you know, a, a beer does not make a philosopher. And he says, if I were a philosopher, would you be required to be lame as well? Right. Would you be required to have a, have a bum leg as well? So even though Epictetus is obviously a philosopher, he's saying that he's not saying he's a philosopher. He's like saying, if I were a philosopher. So one reason, and this is probably the most ironic reason, is just that if these guys didn't consider themselves philosophers, like what chance do I have? Right. So that's one, personally. Two, Caleb, is that I feel personally that if I see myself as being worthy to sit on the, the steps of the Stoa with Zeno and Cleanthes, I consider myself part of this team, I'm already limiting my thinking. I'm already becoming, I'm already less objective. I'm already trying to defend some theory that I, some, some of them are, are not defendable, defensible, right? So I mean, for the most part, and we have, again, there are like, uh, there are s s different writers who wrote differently about what the Stoics believed or didn't believe. But for the most part, they thought that the soul was air, a type of nair, a pneuma type of air, right? That this, this pneuma was all over the, you know, this was the, the, the part of the universe that infiltrated everything that it, it was rationality. So 
we just, I mean, this was the, the physics they had at the time, right? They thought that this was the same pneuma that is in the human being is also the thing all over the, 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 the cosmos. And this, we just, we, we just can't accept this. No one can accept this physically anymore. Yeah, it doesn't look, it doesn't mean we can't learn anything from the Stoics. We certainly can. Okay. But the, the Stoic metaphysics is so quaint, right? Compared to what we just know now about the, the, about physics, about metaphysics, about chemistry, okay, about anatomy, right? About co- cosmology, about astronomy. I mean, they thought the planets were gods, right? So it, again, it doesn't mean we can't learn anything from them, but we have to be suspicious of anyone saying, yes, I am a Stoic too. And I, you know, I believe everything about Stoic philosophy. No, you don't. You really don't, first of all, right? No one does. No one does who's not being ironic or self-deceiving. So I, and I've made the choice not to ever call myself a Stoic. When I die, I've already said, you know, put it on my tomb. If I've ever done anything worthy of Stoicism, put it on my tombstone. Okay. But as a living man, I, I don't deserve nor do I desire to this label because it limits our thinking. I want to also see them in their historical context, which I think is important for understanding who these men were and, and understanding basically their belief system and understanding their flaws. I mean, Chrysippus, even when we were learning that, and by we, I mean in the, in the ancient world, when they were learning that the, the, what it is that the heart and the brain actually clo- closer to what they actually did, Chrysippus was still kind of going back to the debunked metaphysics of the time and anatomy of the time. So they weren't always even up to the latest science, even though they, they thought that they were. Sometimes they, the science even passed them. So look, the way I see it is, for your listeners, I still study everything there is to know about Stoicism. But I think it will even help them, as it helps me, to have some cognitive and philosophical distance from these people. If, we really, if we're really fair to them, then we should understand that, look, this is a philosophy that lasted for 700 years until, you know, some Roman emperor banned all the schools and then, and then Christianity came and started preaching that there's life after death and go with this, right? That we can learn a lot from them, but we have to understand also their limitations. And I think that helps us learn about them and learn. And also it helps us take from them what we can and understand some of their short-sightedness, if that's what it was. Right, right. right. Yeah, that's interesting. So one reason is being a Stoic or being a philosopher is sort of like an achievement, something you get because of the value of your thought or your actions and not something one can just claim. But that's, that's how I understood one of your reasons. It reminds me sort of of the traditional view of happiness, this idea that you can only ascribe happiness to someone once their life has ended, right? Otherwise, you don't know, you know what's, what's going to happen. So Call me a stoic once once my full story's played out is is that view, which is or not, right. which is respectable. Sure. Um, sure. The the other view this so that then there's this view about different beliefs and to push back on that it seems like at least if I think about calling someone a Christian there are a smorgasbord a whole range of different beliefs that Christianity has been associated with it has the advantage of there being specific councils that decreed, you know, what the relevant dogmas are. There's a God that has this triune nature and so forth. But nonetheless, there are going to be many beliefs that are commonly held by some Christians, but not others. And then some that which have basically just dropped out, like beliefs about angels and so on. So, I mean, I would say that like on the Stoic side, it seems like 
there are some beliefs we can identify as core in a somewhat similar manner. These beliefs about virtue, and I think no one disagrees on that front. And then there's some controversy on, among modern Stoics how important our beliefs around the physics and so on. But at least you have that that sort of line of plausibly core beliefs. What do you think about that that line of response? I think it. I think it brings me to another point about why I don't think that there are any modern Stoics. Because it, to me, it seems like, okay, who would you put up there as the next head of the proverbial school? Massimo, right? Donald Robertson, who is this that is now the next Chrysippus or the next Panaitius, right? To me, I don't think any of them make the cut. Not because they're not great guys, they certainly are, all right? But I just, to me, it seems a little like, okay, this is now the head of the school, or are there many heads of the school, or are we doing away with that? And I'm trying to find some common thread that is trying to go you know, from Zeno to us. And can you have Stoic philosophy that abandons divine providence? I don't, I don't think so. Right. I, I just, I don't, I have not read anything about Stoic philosophy in my understanding of it from uh, at least from what we call orthodox stoicism right i mean you have the aristons mm-hmm. up there that kind of sometimes like maybe but it seems like you that i think there's one difference between christianity and stoicism like yeah we can have different types of christians but that's the point right is that this is a faith in stoicism i w- i would like to know how much of the how much of the ancient stoics thought they were doing something on faith right as opposed to things that were reasoned arguments the, and and look i Maybe it is. Maybe there, there. We we have we have no arguments about divine, about divine providence. They, I mean, they kind of just accepted it, and they had arguments as to why, how they would defend that view. But if we're being fair, maybe maybe that was based on. I don't know. But can we have someone like Massimo today? And I know that his perspective has changed in the last couple of years or whatever. But who can who can who can jettison divine providence as being an aspect of Stoic philosophy? And I don't think you can. This is for me one reason why I wouldn't put anybody up there next to Cleanthes or Chrysippus, not because they're not wonderful guys that are writing excellent things about Stoicism. I, I think they should, and they, I hope they make a million dollars doing it. But if I'm being fair to the Stoics, I would say I, I don't know who, I don't know if anybody can today can honestly, can honestly lie down at night and really think to themselves and say, yep, I'm a Stoic philosopher, and this is more than just a job for me. Without saying, maybe I'm, maybe this is really a little silly, believing that I can believe these things that the ancient Stoics did with their, with, with that, that a third grader knows more about the cosmos than the ancient Stoics did, right? So to say that we're going to go back to this in some fundamental sense of the word, to me, it's like, okay, let's learn as much as we can about the Stoics. Let's take, let's, let's take on what life throws at us like the Stoics did. But there's a difference between that and saying that we are the same philosophical school as these people that lived 20, 2,300 years ago that had to contend with Roman emperors and Hellen, Hellenistic kings and getting a cut on their hand on Friday and being dead by Monday, right? It's the, the world's just different now, right? And uh, I think that saying these, these, these so-called Stoics or self-professed Stoics, I think the irony of it, the, the, the deepest irony, Caleb, is that so often they only deal with Stoic ethics, right? I mean, the Stoics had tremendous logicians, right? Epistemologists, 
there were Stoic physicians. And I think that to say, oh, I'm a Stoic because I follow Stoic ethics and I have improved my life. Nice. Awesome that you've improved your life with Stoic philosophy. So have I. But so much of Sto- so many Stoics books, books that were lost were written just about Stoic, meta- Stoic epistemology. And we should spend more time on Stoic epistemology because I think it's fascinating. I th- they were some of the some of the inventors, or at least some of the some of the earliest proponents of of a propositional logic. Mm-hmm. But how many Stoics today are saying, "Hey, let me tell you about Stoic epistemology." There's the impression, there's the ascent to oppression, and, and how many people are doing this? The classicists and classicists, guess what? People who research the Stoics the most don't call themselves Stoics, right? You know, who's calling themselves Stoics, Caleb? It's basically people that found Stoic philosophy. They it helped use it to improve their lives. Hopefully, make something better of themselves. Hopefully, treat their families better. Hopefully they're growing all the time. Hopefully they're applying stoicism to other parts of their life. Like me, I've spent 10 years, more than you know, a decade just reading about stoic philosophy and I thought I had it recovered. And then I then I got married and I have to realize that some some days I'm thinking, do I know stoicism? Like I feel like I've never read it before because now it's a whole new aspect of my life that now I'm angry, now I'm pissed off, now I'm sad, right? And I'm and now I have to apply stoicism to a whole new branch of my life, right? But so much of Stoicism gets lost. So much of their epistemology is gone. So much of their logic is gone. So much of their metaphysics is gone. Sometimes, thankfully so. And so much of what's left is just the writings of some of the later Stoics about, about, about ethics, which I think is very important, of course. And yet it's only one branch of ethics. But if I'm being fair to them and to the Stoics, I would be, I would qualify. I would qualify who's a Stoic more I would be a little more stingy with the word than than some modern some modern inter- interpreters of Stoicism are. Look, this is just one man's opinion, Caleb. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, my take on this is probably more liberal in the sense that I'm happy to call more people Stoics. I don't. When there are many different forms of epistemology, I don't think the Stoic epistemology is that an essential ingredient, although it is important. You know, they were ahead on the game of things like direct realism or you know, there's quite their account of what later becomes called like, you know, intention and extension and philosophy of language is interesting and plausibly pioneering, but perhaps not an essential part of the philosophy. There is a, I think there are two things that stand out to me in what you said that are more serious concerns, which is this idea about providence. How central is that to the philosophy? Can you get rid of that at all? And then this other institutional idea, you know, how central is something being a living institution, a school with heads of the school that move through time to a tradition and to what sense can that be revived? And if it can't be revived, should it just become a different thing? Which are, you know, perhaps, perhaps it has become a different thing already or is a different thing already. Well, yeah, I think let's... Sure. Do you, do you no, have anything else to add on to that? Just, just to put, I guess, to put a, a point on it. Just, I may be being hard, harder on modern-day self-professed Stoics than I mean to be, and I don't want, I don't want to do that because I think Stoicism does have a lot to offer. Obviously, I think Stoicism has a lot to offer our lives. I mean, I'm, I've written about it. I still write about it. I'm, I love with the Stoics, but I will say that I would call for some, some cognitive distance, at least just to be able to read them in their own, read them a little more objectively to the extent possible. And then when someone says something or writes something, like someone someone big in the Stoic, someone big in the Stoic movement recently said something 
about war and whether or not war, whether or not a stoic could go to war, whether or not war can be virtuous, things like this. And it's very important, I think, that if to note that if we call this person the leading stoic or a stoic, and then say, yes, this is what the stoics think. And then we compare this to what the ancient stoics thought on this. Or someone like Cleomenes, the stoic Spartan king, thought on the matter. This would be vastly different. So who do we go with? The ancient stoic-inspired ruler or this academic that is saying something that I consider a bit a bit un, unstoic? Wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or at least, yes, at least wrong in terms of Stoic thought. Maybe saying something intelligent. Like, just because a Stoic says something doesn't mean they're right, okay, is what I also want to say. Like, maybe the Stoics are wrong, right? Maybe maybe there is no divine providence. But to say you can be an atheist and a Stoic to me seems unstoic, right? At least least from this one international theorist's point of view, right? Yeah. The question about distance, I think, is useful almost in two ways. Like first, the distance when coming to the Stoics may be useful because their beliefs are mistaken, but there's also the distance we should have for our own beliefs and thinking about them in comparison to the Stoics. And perhaps if you think about the Stoic tradition, some of their traditions may be more correct, more useful, more conducive to a flourishing lives than our immediate beliefs, the usual consensus <laughs> beliefs about how to live today. So I think the point about distance is well taken. And it's interesting that it can go both in the traditionalist sense or revisionary sense. But we, you know, we need to have more, more of those debates once, once we see things in the proper light, I suppose. Point taken. So one thing I wanted to ask about was in your book, you have this example of two models who are initially in opposition. You have the model of Pat Tillman and then Catherine Gunn, one person who joins the Iraq war, seen as a just war and fights in it, loses his life in it. And then another person who sees it as an unjust war. I believe she's in a British either intelligence agency or journalist agency, perhaps you can, you can correct me or not, but ends up leaking information with the ex- explicit goal to prevent it. And you highlight both of those people, despite their apparent uh, opposition as models. What, can you say more about why you do that? Uh, what we try to emphasize here is that there, there is such an importance of social roles for the Stoics, right? So by the time you get to Panaitius, and, and Cicero interpreting the, the works of Panaitis and Posidonius and so on, you, you, find, you find four roles, right? So we all have to act according to common nature or a common human nature, right? Then we all have individual roles about what we are like, okay? And then on top of that, there's the roles of circumstance, right? What are, what are, the, what are, what are our circumstances? What are, what are our social standing? And then like what career goals do we have? What do we, who do we want to be? So importantly, these roles cannot conflict with, well, I should say, they ought not conflict with each other. And if, if, if done correctly, they will not conflict with each other. Like my social role, I, some, I don't have a, a career goal as a serial killer. That's going that, that is, you know what I mean? That's going to conflict with my human role, right? right, right. My role. So they, 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 they will not conflict if you're doing it correctly. 
Now, to find out what your role is, it's different philosophers, different Stoic philosophers had different things to say about it. But we ought to act if we're to the extent that we're acting appropriately, to the, to the extent that we're acting according to what is katakon, right? This appropriate actions is to the extent that we're acting according to social roles. And different there are different social roles for different people. What I admired about someone like Pat Tillman is that he could have just played football, right? He could have been a national sports icon, and he gave that up to go act according to what he thought his social role was as a very fit individual serving his country to the extent that he thought the war was just at all, right? I'm, I can imagine having disagreements with Pat, knowing what we know now about how just this war is, about whether or not a war can be just at all in the Stoic sense, or whether or not we can be just in war, which is a, which is a virtue ethics approach to war in a war. Like we, we see wars now, is this a just war? Is this an unjust war? The Stoics wouldn't have seen it that way. They would have seen like, am I being just in the war? Am I starting a war for, for just reasons? Things like this. Am I acting justly? Am I acting according to human nature? But we have people on different sides of a war. And I could easily imagine in the ancient world, Stoics on different sides of wars, of a war, right? So you have us, these people we juxtapose, someone, especially in, the, in that chapter, about how even acting what seemingly at odds were still acting according to the information they had at the time and according to what they interpreted their social role to be, right? And we, I can, we can juxtapose this with someone like, for example, Marcus Aurelius, like we said before, who understands according to social role, he has to, sometimes he has to kill a lot of Germans, right? But once he defeats them, he can also be the type of person that's like, okay, your foreign policy is gone. Now your foreign policy is my foreign policy. That being stated, come be Romans. And I'm simplifying here, right, for the sake of the, the story. But I mean, I'm, I'm trying to simplify by much to say that Marcus Aurelius is able to defeat the Yazigis or the Sarmatians and these Germanic tribesmen and then say, okay, now you're, now you're Romans. Now your foreign policy is gone, but now you're, you're one of us. And come pay your taxes and come be Romans. Now, it doesn't mean that he can't ever uh, declare war on them again. Sometimes he kicks them out, all of them out for starting for for starting a, a siege somewhere, right? But to the extent possible, according to social role, he was able to act appropriately. And if he were if he were just, he's able to act justly, right? Only the wise person can act justly. That's why. Do I okay? Let, let's be clear. Was Pat Tillman a Stoic sage? No. Was Catherine a Stoic sage? No. But they you could they could have been acting appropriately, and if they were if they were sages, they'd have been acting justly, right? We can hope to be appropriately, and 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 the, at least the Stoics tell us that one day, if our soul is in that kind of tension, then one day we can be just, and our, all our appropriate actions will also be just actions. And we try to, in the book, try to look at an ancient person and a modern person that even though the world is radically different now, their worldview is radically different, we can find something about them that is similar in this sense. And I think what's similar in this chapter between these two modern people, Catherine and, and Pat, is that they both thought that their social role requires them to act this way. And they, they, could, have done the, they could have done the opposite. They could have neglected this, but we admired this about them. Even if we had misgivings about what they ought to be doing, they, from, from the subjective point of view in their in their social role, in their circumstances, we can say that we admired them about this, and that's why they made it into the book. Right? Yeah, it shows that you can be in a given position, and your uh, role isn't to 
step back and at and try to get into some view from nowhere and think about what is the ultimately just thing to do in the society. That's it's right, instead- Caleb. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for interrupting, but I will tell you that that's right. And I, I got to tell you that so often we have something similar to this, I think, in some of like the difference in the Stoics of the, in the, the days of Nero. So you have someone like right. Seneca and you have someone like, right? That, and they have different social roles, certainly, but they're both aristocrats. They're both, in, they're both the, the elite of Roman society. But you have someone like Thrasia who's saying like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not clapping for Nero. This is ridiculous. I'm not, I don't want any part of this dumpster fire. And he walks out while Nero's talking. And he's like, F you, F everyone, right? Do what you're going to do. I don't care. But what does he do, really? He gets himself killed, right? That's, you know, this person who is virtue itself, right, is the, 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 what's attached to him in the, in the histories, right? This person was virtue, virtue himself. Basically, all he does is really get himself killed without changing anybody's mind. Yeah, I get it. Like it picked it to say, he's showing us what a human being can become. He's the purple, the proverbial purple stripe in the toga, right? That we should aspire to, even though we can't be that ourselves necessarily. But if I'm, if I'm defending Seneca, which is, leaves a bad taste in my mouth to do so, right? What could I say? I say, yeah, look, when Nero had his little plays, I clapped. When Nero did his little song and dance, I was there. Yes. But when, when Nero, when I was there, before, before I had my fallen out with Nero, the empire was well run. Okay? The empire was well run. And all you stoic, op- the stoic opposition there in the Senate arguing for your aristocratic rights, what did you guys ever do? Nothing. Meanwhile, I'm the one running, I'm the one power behind the throne, keeping Nero busy so we can run the empire. Okay. You, you know, put me on a cross for that if you want to, but at least things got done. Okay. Now I'm not, I'm not trying to say Seneca is, fl- is, is not, is not to be blamed for anything. He might've started a war with, with Britain over his, over him collecting his, his debts. Right. If the, if the rumors about him are true, but at least when he was there, he was keeping Nero busy enough and putting he keeping Nero on his best behavior so the empire could be well run. People, guys like Thracia who were so guys like Thracia who were so so worried about being stoic enough, and certainly they were, but all they did was get themselves killed. And these guys were on opposite sides, right? And yet both of them were, at least if I'm being charitable, I could say both of these guys are acting according to their social role. Their social role and the, the way the information they had at the time, and from this the point of view of someone that has to wear this wear the uniform of a Roman statesman. And even mm-hmm. if that, even those, even if those were opposite ends, they still did their duty in a stoic, in a stoic light, kind of like Pat and Catherine who were on opposite ends and still according and still acted according to their social rules. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. You can see, you see this tension quite often in Rome between different senators taking principled stands. You can contrast Cato the Younger and Cicero, for example. Cato the Younger principled an inspiration to Thersea, uh, as opposed to Cicero, who, you know, if you wanted to describe him well, was a realistic, right. aiming to improve things. If you wanted to describe, describe him poorly, was an opportunist looking to cut deals. Uh, but exactly. it's, a, it's a messy, messy world, and plausibly both of them were doing the best given what they, given what they knew. Sure. And um, I will just, if I can, if I can add one more thing, Caleb, to this, sometimes stoicism is found in interesting places or, or, or stoic, what we might call stoic behavior is found in interesting places. Like look at this, this conspiracy against Nero. When Nero finds out about it, he's having all the stoics beaten within, you know, tortured, beaten within an inch of their life and eventually executed, right? 
you have Stoics like Seneca's nephew who's ratting out even his own mother, right? So his torture will stop. Okay, this is someone who's trained in Stoic philosophy, and yet he's ratting out his own mother. Now, meanwhile, this, this one freed, a freed woman at Picaris, she is probably never had a day of Stoic training in her, in her life. And she's getting, she's getting a snot beat out of her, tortured, and she decides to not rat anybody out, and she hangs herself with her own bra, right? So this is a very stoic way, stoic death, right? a, a very stoic approach to suffering, a very stoic approach to death. Meanwhile, the guys that are writing stoic poetry and stoic books are writing out their own moms, okay? So sometimes we, found, we find stoicism in interesting places. And I think that there's, and I, I don't want to make too much of this, but I think there's some kind of analogy here where we can admire. Like the Stoics understood that the excellent person does what the normal people, the common person does naturally. They just do it excellently, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes there is something to be said about people who have this, about the Stoics admiring and their, their view of living according to nature is exactly that. Doing what people tend to do, that's, they're on the right track. But the, the, ex, the Stoic is the one who aspires to do it excellently. And a sage is a person who does it excellently every time, right? Yep, 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 absolutely. Yeah, it's not sufficient to call oneself Stoic or indeed know about Stoicism. And perhaps there are even dangers that come with, come with it as, long as, as well as benefits. I don't think there's a, there's a Stoic version of this yet, but Christians are fond of saying, you know, even Satan goes to church on Sunday. Uh, <laughs> but I don't, I don't know what the, the Stoic version of that is, but there's, there is some wisdom in that, in, sure. that, in that statement. Excellent. Well, is there anything else you want to add? Oh. Let me, let me, if I could add anything, Caleb, it's that if, if you, the, the stoic, the stoic view of living according to nature, I wish that we could have podcasts like yours, which, which I admire that we, this is actually one of the most intellectual podcasts I've been on. And that I do appreciate very much because usually, and I do go on podcasts, but I, I like being able to kind of delve into these topics and and nuanced topics. I don't often get to, I mean, there's only so many times I can talk about like, you know, self-improvement, right? With in Stoic philosophy, there's so much more to Stoic philosophy. And I, I would like, so I would like also Pete, your, your, your listeners to be able to actually, instead of reading so much, and again, this is not, this is probably detrimental to my career, but there's something about being able to go back and read the ancients before you read the moderns. Right. So I actually, for better or worse, I read very little of modern stoicism. Right. I'm not, for my part, I'm not very interested in, in this right now. What I, th- there's something Heidegger supposedly said about Nietzsche. He's like, he said, you should go back and read Aristotle for 10 years before you read Nietzsche. Right. And I think I'd like to like paraphrase this or update this and say, we need to go back and read Diogenes Laertius about the early Stoics and Epictetus for 10 years before we start coming back and reading about, hey, let me tell you how stoicism can help, you know, help you in your job or help you, you know, with your, with feeling sad after work, right? I, I would call, if I could, for your listeners to literally go back and read the lives of the Stoics in Diogenes Laertius, in Plutarch, Stoics they'd never heard of before, like Cleomenes, because there's so much to learn from them. So the Stoics themselves discussed very often the moral exemplar. And that's exactly what Diogenes Laertius and Plutarch are doing, right? Which is put a point on it. There's like a, this, 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 this time that Cleanthes was brought into the courts 
because they couldn't figure out how he was so buff, so diesel, if he's doing he's in philosophy class all day long, right? And then he's showing like, look, I lift water at night. Right? I, I carry water on my back to people's gardens at night, right? And I used to be a boxer. And this is how I'm, this is what I'm doing. And they're like, wow, that's amazing. Take some money. Like here's, here's a grant. And Zeno didn't let him keep it, right? Zeno let it, had made, made him give, give back the money. And now there's, now we have to ask ourselves why. Is it because money comes with strings attached? Is it because Cleanthes in his former boxer life, this would have been like giving, giving a, a, an alcoholic, you know, access to the, 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 the bar, right? Who knows why he didn't let him keep it? But I think this is so often we can pull these stories and if we understand what the ancients are saying in their own words or somebody like Diogenes Laertius who's talking about these the, this ancients themselves, we can pull so many interesting concepts about Stoicism that we just don't ever talk about. And I wish that we could talk more about it in places like, like this that you have, right? Yeah, well, yeah, over time, let's do it. Bring, bring back the Stoa. <laughs> bring back the Stoa, I like that. All right, I'll end it there then. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Stoa Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.